I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show there's so many good ones though <laughs> all the cannibal jokes made me laugh oh my the can- god oh man and the fact that they sort of kept being peppered in yeah. <laughs> it's like she knows what we want <laughs> <laughs> yeah so many so many so many Damn books. Okay, let's start this. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And this is So Many Damn Books. We have Stephanie Dandler in the damn library with us. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Thanks so much for returning, Stephanie. (laughs) Stephanie Dandler is the author of the acclaimed international bestseller Sweet Bitter, as well as the creator of the television show uh, based on the novel, also called Sweet Bitter. Um, on stars as we speak yeah <laughs> go to your stars app and watch <laughs> and pause this watch those and come back yes eh, i don't know about pausing this <laughs> <laughs> you can watch them after okay do that um and you're also um live in los angeles now and all sorts of great things have happened on on your end and we'll get to that stuff soon yes. right yes okay but first let me tell you about this drink about the pipe pipette the pipette drink i was inspired by the first episode of the show and which is so about salt and and her flavor of salt and i wanted to use salt in a cocktail for a long time um and so rather than go completely like that what i did to gabe um <laughs> what'd you do to gabe uh gabe habash i made him a um a cocktail that had beef broth in it um mm. it was sort of like a bloody mary but instead of mm-hmm. tomato juice it was beef broth it tasted a lot like kvass yeah if you've okay. had that uh but this is definitely very different this, yes this is a I, this is a salted <laughs> lime syrup that i used along with lime juice uh contrato bitter which is sort of like a campari um, although not as sweet, uh, some Bacardi gold rum and then a pipette or a pipette of the bitter to add in as you, if the drink's too sweet, you can add it, or you can just take it at the end as like an aperitif to your cocktail. I don't know. Delicious. To the cocktail? This is just one of those things where Amazon like knows me too well now, <laughs> and it's just like suggested for you. And I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> yes I do want for days. <laughs> I, would, I would like a 100 pack of the <laughs> bet. You are correct. <laughs> so now I've used three of them. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And I don't know what the other 97 will be. Used for. <laughs> but that's the drink. It's And I'm calling it uh, the baby monster. Oh. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And that's the drink. Nice. 
It's very strange. It, it's good. It's, good. Mm-hmm. it's very salty, but in a completely different way from uh, the game one. You associate that salt with a tequila-based drink, and mm-hmm. so it's nice to have the rum kind of grounding it, but mostly the Contrato is really, really lovely. Yeah, I, I really like this Contrato stuff. Um, this and just like some lemon soda is really nice as well. So, can we talk about um, what'd you buy? Sure. Do you want to start, Drew? Yes. Um, I will go with two things that have come my way recently uh, from some wonderful publicist friends of ours. Uh, one is Invitation to a Bonfire by Adrian Selt mm-hmm. Kelt. Um, it is it is a riff on the Nabokov marriage, but it sounds like it's taking the sort of tumultuous marriage that they had and turning it into a little bit more of like a slow burning steamy thriller oh. with with a love triangle and stuff. I don't know. It seems off the bat. I've only opened it and sort of looked at the first few pages, but it seems very pale fire esque, where there's sort of there are documents and then there's commentary on the documents fun and games yeah uh so i'm excited to check that out and the other is how to love a jamaican a short story collection debut short story collection by alexia arthurs and she had a story in the sewanee review in the most recent issue and i was like oh this story is great Mm -hmm. and i got the collection and it's just like it is pop culture badass uh, female-driven storytelling. Cool. I love. I've read three of the stories so far, and I really dig it. Nice. So fun. I haven't read that story yet. I just read the Alexander Chi essay oh, from yeah. that issue, and I went out and bought his book immediately. Yeah. Oh, um, I have to go get his book. Oh my god, it's great. I mean, especially as readers and writers, there's an uh, instructional aspect to it that you don't always find when yeah. people are writing essays but he has like a teacher's heart and that's his book um how to write a personal novel how to write an autobiographical novel yeah um but that's not what i bought okay what <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go next but i did i mean i did buy that <laughs> at the strand support your local bookstores um i just picked up sheila Hetty's motherhood Oh. oh, cool. Which I feel like a lot of people around me are reading. And I had mixed feelings on how should a person be. And I'm about 25 pages into motherhood. And I find that she can be wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is an infinitely more mature book. Sure. Ooh. So I'm I'm excited about it. Okay. I've, I've been curious if... Cause a lot of people are bringing it up in conversation with Ariel Levy's... Um, the Rules Do Not Apply, mm-hmm. which I loved. I think that there's like a whole canon of books that are investigating motherhood and art and how the two can coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel Cusk's A Life's Work is a very controversial classic. You have um, Jenny Offal's Department of Speculation. Mm-hmm. Sarah Manguso writes a lot about this. And the Argonauts. Is... Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Mar- Maggie Nelson's 
which you brought uh, bluettes to us. I sure did. Longtime listeners of the show will remember. <laughs> Way back in the day. And if you're a new listener of the show, go back and listen to that one. Yeah, that's a real that was that's a good episode and a great book. That Bluets. is a great book. It's a special special book. Um, but there seems to be something in the ether about that women want to talk about the struggles between committing yourself to your art and the sort of like narcissistic life that we envision for ourselves when we decide to become artists Mm -hmm. and then the compromises and the sacrifices that come with motherhood and can you do both and I think ultimately everyone says no but um (laughs) everyone keeps trying right so we'll see what happens at the end of motherhood I know that Sheila Hetty doesn't have children so we'll see how she arrives there yeah (laughs) wow Christopher uh, oh yeah, I um I bought uh, a book called The Witches of New York by Amy McKay, um, and it's this sort of it took my breath away actually for a second because um, I don't know I never talk about my my life as a writer, but I'm writing a book about a witch in New York, mm. and so when I, I was like, uh oh. Someone did it. <laughs> but then I look at the back and it's like, in 1880. And I'm like, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that at all. Uh, and it's about a woman who decides she's going to not live the life that has been chosen for her and instead move to New York and work at Tea and Sympathy, where hmm. um, she has to, she will be serving tea as well as learning witchcraft. Cool. Mm. So I'm uh I'm actually a few pages into it and it's like one of those things where you look up and like you've read 75 pages. Nice. Mm. Um cuz it's just so it really draws you in. It reminds me of um Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Oh, yeah. Um yeah, really awesome. Okay, now I really want to talk about your show. Yeah. Yeah. Better. Um, an ad- adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, so your book came out. It was celebrated, and people really responded well to it. And then, yeah, and when last we spoke to you, you were in the midst of that. Yeah, right. And, and so, how did we get to here? Yeah, what happened next? Well, I think right when I sold the book to Knopf, and I hadn't edited it yet, the initial like interest from Hollywood came a group of producers and they're really on it these agents and these producers they're on content and it's usually a mad rush and very competitive for books that hit the bestseller list and my agents and I decided to hold back and let me edit the book and let it come out and see what it was going to become and so as soon as Sweet Bitter really took off the meetings began (laughs) And initially, I thought I would just take the option money and work on my next book, which is what most novelists do. But I have this team of women, a book to film agent, a screenwriting agent, and my literary agent. And they really believed that I could make the transition and that I could learn how to write a script and that the dialogue in the book spoke to an affinity for it. And... For, they really believed in me. And I just don't know entirely why, but they <laughs> positioned me as a sort of creator, writer, executive producer. And then it was about finding people 
The same with publishing the book, actually, finding people who weren't going to sensationalize or commercialize it, Mm -hmm. that wanted to tell the same story that I was interested in telling in the book, which is very close to the psyche of a 22-year-old girl and not really so much about sex and drugs, although those are essential parts of her journey, and definitely not really about uh, exposing the restaurant industry, which is what 90% of the producers I met with were interested in. Right. So once we narrowed it down, it became a matter of these really smart people, Plan B and my showrunner, Stu Zickerman, sending me off and saying, okay, buy final draft. I was like, what? It's so expensive. (laughs) Um, Why do I need this stupid program to write? And figuring out how to write a script. Right. And it took, I mean, I revised and revised and revised with notes from my producers for eight months and I was totally fed up. And the whole time I was touring for Sweet Bitter still. And I was inclined to trust them. And so when we finally took it to market, things happened very quickly because we had been developing it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stars bought it in July. And two weeks later, I was moving to New York and setting up the writer's room. And right, because you moved to Los Angeles after you, you decamped. From, yes, from I did. I haven't done a great job of moving to Los Angeles, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Last year, I spent seven months in New York. The year before, I think I spent six months. Um, I'm an intermittent Los Angeles resident, and I'm obsessed <laughs> with it, and I just want to live there. And so there's this antagonistic <laughs> relationship with New York. Um, but obviously, it's not done with me yet. And we talked about having the writer's room in L.A. and like potentially filming part Ooh. of the show there and then flying here to do our exteriors, which mm-hmm. is something they do a lot. And I was like, no, I'll move. I want New York writers. I want New York actors. I want the bleed that happens from being close to the city mm-hmm. and having people that didn't just live there once when they were 20, mm-hmm. but are yeah. currently st- still struggling and thriving in their 50s and 40s and in their 20s. Yeah. In 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 transitioning a a book to a a a visual medium, there's some things that have to be lost and some things that you have to compromise on i'm just curious what were you like i can't compromise on this like i have to make sure that this is in the show somehow we had to figure out a way to get the the sort of like sense memory or the sensual aspect of Mm. the book into the show because the story is very flat without it um this is really uh an education like a sentimental education but it lives in this idea of her developing her palate Right. And so it starts with oysters in the show, but it needs to continue that this woman's lens on the world is through her senses. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's a really impossible thing to shoot. That's something that you get from the quality of someone's thoughts mm-hmm. and the ways that they're perceiving. And in another way, when you get to the oyster scene, instead of two pages talking about what the oyster looks like and the metaphors that come with it. You have this shimmering close up on an oyster in a hand and the visual just shortcuts language. Right. In a lot of ways, it's more direct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I hadn't thought about this until Christopher said it to me today, but the fact, like, uh, I think it's possibly because I read the book, and so I was going into the series with the knowledge of the book, but the first episode, there's not a ton of dialogue. Right. She right. doesn't really have a conversation until she sits down with Howard. Uh, and and, but you don't clock that until you sort of start thinking about it in that sense of like, yeah, that's like one way we take in the city is just by like listening to the sounds around us. Well, that's a hard character to write. We would always say it's hard to write an observational character. Mm -hmm. In the book, she doesn't really talk or contribute to a conversation until page like 90 where Mm -hmm. she interrupts them while they're refilling the pepper grinders. Uh Um, I mean, she has her oysters with Jake and there are snippets, but she hasn't really integrated herself into the group for quite a while. Right. And that's on purpose. And so... Yeah, of course. Your first day at the job, you're not arguing with people or asking them how they came there. You're just trying to figure out what's happening. Right. right. Just working. It reminded me of, um, I was saying to Drew, uh, Wally, like the first 40 minutes of Wally, he does like it's so Wally. quiet and it's, there's, oh, yeah. there's no dialogue at all mm. and it's just visual and observational. So that's, yeah. <laughs> it's a funny, it was funny to have that going through my mind while I was watching the show. Well, it's something we talked a lot about because it's like the antithesis of the cable character. Usually they're Mm -hmm. very active and very damaged and they're demonstrating who they are within the first five seconds. And this is really the opposite of that. Um, Your Instagram was really fun to follow during the... um during the production of the show, it seemed like you were like really enjoying like the sort of Disneyland style, the aspect of it. It's absolutely Disneyland. A thousand percent <laughs> kitsch, surreal magic. And you fictionalize your life for a book. Then you fictionalize it again for a television show. <laughs> and then it appears in front of you and you wake up and you, everyone's wearing the same stripes that you used to wear when you were 22. And you're like, how did they know that? Oh yeah, I did. I chose them. Uh, I've chosen the chair colors, the China, the art on the walls, the, you were there for all of those conversations. I was absolutely on hand for every single aesthetic decision as well as the, the writing stuff. Wow. That's awesome. I just, I mean, it takes over your life. It's really, really difficult, but that sounds more hands-on than other writers or other experiences. Like, is that was that something that you wanted? That you, I mean, with the interest of the show, did you sort of say like, I have to be really involved in all of these things, or did they just ask for you to be there? Um, they asked, and I also just kept thinking that this was a free PhD in television making, mm-hmm. and. I have Oscar winning producers. Plan B wins an Oscar like literally every year. And they're willing to teach me how to make this work. And it's also my world. So I was the expert. Mm. They, If people had a question about how we should move, we ended up hiring a kitchen consultant and a front of house consultant to make sure that the service was the way that I wanted it because I couldn't be there. But in the beginning, does this look period appropriate? the costume decisions Mm. the hair and makeup so i was totally unqualified to be there except that (laughs) i am an expert in 2006 restaurant (laughs) culture (laughs) i'd love to know about um you working with ella purnell who plays tess she's um She's a great, she's a great actress and she seems to 
it's not how I actually pictured Tess in my head. Mm. Um, but she's she's fascinating to watch. Yeah. And so I was just curious, like, because she you you've talked with us about how she was so close to your to you um, in the last episode. So. Yeah, and I think we went into it. We saw over two hundred women for Tess, wow. and we went into it thinking that we would find a blonde sort of reminiscent of Isabel Archer in Henry James's portrait of a lady. Mm-hmm. And we described Tess so many times as a bank blank slate. But of course, when you are casting an actor, no one is a blank slate. Right. And Ella in particular, her face speaks to a certain experience. Like, mm-hmm there's charisma and energy there that the character in the book doesn't necessarily possess. But I remember seeing her tape and being like, are those her real eyes? (laughs) And then continuing, we're going through a tape of six women. And afterwards, Stu and I looked at each other. I was like, let's watch that little Charles Dickens girl again. (laughs) And that I was like, she, and she was so messy for her audition and she had these big hoops on and like tons of eyeliner. And I was like, she is the artful dodger. And she is the only person I have seen that I believe would get up in the middle of the night and move to New York city alone. Mm. There was Mm. a temptation with a lot of the women we were playing where she was too innocent, Mm. uh, too naive for you to believe that, she ever took this kind of spontaneous action. Right. Hmm. It was such a fascinating, different introduction to a character who I thought I already knew. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that's Ella. She's funny. And we had these lines in the pilot originally when Simone is dressing her down at the end. Simone said, you've gotten by on your looks for so long you haven't developed a character. And once we cast Ella, we're like, this girl hasn't gotten by in her look. She's gotten by on her charms. She's funny and she is street smart and has common sense. And so the rest immediately, right? These actors start teaching you about who these characters are and they change. And that is for the better, my friends. If you, as writers, if you know anything, it's like we have an unhealthy attachment to our characters Mm -hmm. and giving them over to actors that you respect is just like, please take this and run. Let's make something new. Mm. Cool. And did Ella bring anything like that? You were like, oh, I never even thought about that. Like that, like that she said that she wanted to do or... Yeah, Ella brought a lot, actually. I think that she, I hadn't been around an actual 21-year-old in a really long time. Like, Mm -hmm. until I met Ella, I think I still thought that I was 22. And then I was like, oh, whoa, no, I'm not. Um, She, a lot of the humor is just her, Mm -hmm. is just her improving, especially in that um, interview scene with Howard. Uh We just kind of let her run with it. And then... Also, this Ella and I talked a lot about likability, and she's been in this industry since she was 12 years old, and she has played all sorts of good girl roles, and she's never cursed on screen. She's never kissed someone. Wow. She's never shown a shoulder, mm-hmm. let alone like encountered actual sexual content, and she really wanted to be honest and awkward about these things and not just have it be cool and likable and streamlined. Um, And I love that that's where her head was at. It was something we talked about early. The death of this character would be to try to make her likable to the audience. Mm. 
do you want to do more television? I mean, besides this, or I guess, well, you're going to do more of this. I am. The writers' room starts on Tuesday, or the day that you're listening to this, I believe. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's um, awesome. The season two writers' room is up in Adam, which is very exciting. Because the writer's room is the best part. Production is a Disneyland dream. I love the Disneyland <laughs> um, comparison. But the writer's room is somewhere between a, a writer's... It's like a very playful, open writer's workshop where you're building something together. And you're throwing out idea after idea. And one of them sticks to the wall. And you begin to make a map of a story with a group of people. It's such a strange way of writing. But... Um, it can be very energizing mm -hmm. as opposed to the battle alone in the tunnel of the mind that <laughs> often ends with like suicidal feelings. <laughs> um, I find this very energizing. I don't think I'll do content that's not my own. Mm. I think that every novelist has to have a day job, um, either practically, but also ethically i think it's nice to keep a day job so that you're free to make art on your own timeline and right. um so if it wasn't this it would be something else for me and this is very very fulfilling so hmm. cool nice i can't wait for season two yeah i can't yeah. wait for season one to end to Contin be continuing season. well season one's yeah. so short it really is like a I prologue was kind of surprised mm -hmm. to see that when it was only it's, it's only six episodes six 30 minute episodes right which is like three episodes of another television show yeah we are paired with the show vita which is excellent and everyone should watch um and stars gave us both six episodes and it was they're mini seasons essentially right to test out these concepts with a promise for 10 episodes which is a normal season oh. for season two Cool. Um, and so we were encouraged to take the storytelling slowly and make it a prologue and establish the characters. And then we can go wild now. Cool. It's been amazing uh, just walking around the city because like Sweet Bitter is papered over New York every Dude, yeah. single stop i mean you can you believe how much money the television industry has <laughs> compared to publishing yeah like can you actually believe it i saw a sweet bitter um advertisement on an hudson news bag yeah in wow. the airport which that I was, was just crazy like, wow like literally everywhere and, yeah um it's it's pretty pretty wild i think that there there have been other television campaigns like this but i just would never notice right i wouldn't notice sure. what was on my hudson <laughs> news bag but i'm just so mortified because of <laughs> this pink and this font that i like know is associated with me in some way i mean they really it was overkill but that's fine <laughs> <laughs> So I was reading your Vulture New York Magazine interview mm. um, and you were talking about how you missed writing sentences or like just like writing sentences was something you had to throw out the window when you were working on Sweet Bitter, uh, the, the, the television the show. Television show. <laughs> um, and I just felt like Anagrams by Lori Moore, which you brought us, must have made you really also miss working on a sentence level because she writes awesome, crazy sentences. Oh my God. As a pro stylist, I, I, there are like very few people that can match her. Yeah. But and not just like, I'm thinking of other incredible pro stylists, but 
um, the tone. Right. Tonally, you could open a Lori Moore book on any page and know exactly what you were reading. But I think my recent Lori Moore bender is a result of having just written a bunch of scripts and been reading scripts for so long. Because these are the kind, these stories, what she writes is the kind of thing that you cannot possibly adapt. Mm -hmm. To lose the language would be to lose everything. Right. There's no plot. Most characters are extremely thin. Right. And all, all she does is exercise syntax in order to evoke feeling. And that's what literature is. Yeah. Um, you brought uh, anagrams by Lori Moore to us. Why, yes, I why did. This book? So I'm on a Lori Moore bender, right? I start with self-help. I immediately read Frog Hospital. Then I read Birds of America. Then someone tells me, that I very much trust um, a total book nerd that anagrams is their favorite and that everyone else hates it. And immediately I'm intrigued and I see that it was critically panned sort of across the board when yeah, it came out. Yeah, I read out. that Times review. It was not nice. The one no. that they pulled a quote from, they're like, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the secret, right? <laughs> I just wrote a Times book review and it's coming out soon. And I made sure that I gave them something, (laughs) even though it was maybe not that nice. Spoiler alert. Anyway. um, And so I picked up anagrams expecting a novel. And of course it is not really a novel. Mm -hmm. I, um, an anagram just for our listeners out there is when you rearrange the letters in a word to create another word. And Lori Moore has said of this book, that she has rearranged the characters to create other worlds. Mm -hmm. And so there are two main characters in Anagrams, Gerard and Benna. There are really five stories and four, according to Lori, because this book is one of those things that you could debate and interpret a thousand different ways. The four early stories are meant to be satellites of the second half of the book, Mm. which almost functions as a novella. Um, a short story called The None of That. Mm-hmm. None being uh, N-U-N. Right. Like convent. <laughs> um, and I knew none of this going into it. I read with this sort of like dazed curiosity and also at certain points frustration, wondering what she was doing, wondering if this could possibly build to something satisfying. And even now, having finished it, I think the themes of it moved me so deeply. I mean, I was heaving, weeping by the end of it. I still wonder about the frustration of the first four stories. Mm. I think that what she does is weave themes, which is what Drew, you were talking about earlier, themes of unrequited love and longing and Loneliness. Loneliness. Like, not just, like, sophisticated ennui, but, like, real misfit outsider loneliness. And then I think what made me so excited about the book is I was tracing this through line of childlessness Mm -hmm. and questions of motherhood through every single story, really coming together in... The last story, the none of this, none of that, mm-hmm. none of that, none of that, um, where you realize that this 
daughter character, Georgianne. Are we allowed to spoil? I mean, I guess yeah. we're I talking so. about this, the book. A book the from statute of limitations. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 32 years old at this point. Like, Great. I think it's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, one of the most richly drawn characters in the book, Georgianne, is Benna's six-year-old daughter. And she is so charming and so real. And you realize that Benna has made her up mm-hmm. to yeah. cope with and, her life. And not even like you realize like at the end sort of like sixth sense style like like you've, very, been, you've been told you the whole time but did you believe i d- i didn't believe i thought that this was like jargon or well, like metaphor i took her at face value and it made me like really confused about like what happened afterwards where she because she says like and my imaginary six-year-old daughter to even like introduce her I know, and my imaginary friend Eleanor, and I thought there was some sort of cleverness at play that would reveal itself at the end, and then when she confesses to Gerard that they are imaginary, my heart broke. Because mm. they're rich lives that she's made for them. Absolutely. They're also her people. Yeah. They're the people... What is it? Life is hard. Here is someone. And she's had to create these someones from her imagination. And then her disastrous encounter with real life intimacy through Gerard and through her brother. And she chooses to recede back into the fantasy of her and her daughter. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is brutal. Yeah, that ending, like the last 20 pages is just it's disembowelingly brutal so when i look back on it i wonder how necessary the first four stories were because the (laughs) but i feel like one way of looking at it is that those stories were imaginings of the benna in the none of that Mm. um even though Lori has said that they're satellites and things that came to her while she was writing the longer piece, like oh, I choose yeah. to imagine that the Benna that I've invested in from the second half of the book has imagined all of these other lives for her and Gerard. Right. Because otherwise it reads, do you guys remember Janet Malcolm's 41 false starts to an essay? Mm-hmm. Um, she starts an essay over and over again about the artist David Saleh and never completes it mm-hmm. and that's sort of her commentary on him as an artist is that there's no there there right and this book runs the risk of there being no there there but that last story is so powerful right. and i think your sympathy for benna and the fact that this childless whether or not to have a child this like sort of void that opens in your 30s where is this it Mm-hmm. Is this life it? There's no Lori Morse characters never have illusions of fame or fortune or of transcending their circumstances. They're always stuck a mm-hmm. bit. And it's like, should I have a kid? Which to me is so relevant and that speaks to the Sheila Hetty book as well. It's this conversation that women have in their mid thirties. What do I do now? Am mm-hmm. I supposed to have a child? Right. Um so I feel like the four stories are necessary because they implant the themes that are going to be paid off in the last half. Well, I, I felt like, so the way that this novel works, if it is a novel, if you just, it, it's called, it's called a novel. Yeah, it, it is. is. Um, but 
the way that it works is like it starts with a short story and then this next one a lot of the information that you just got as it's you're like wait a minute that's not what i was reading before and then it's not a, it's just like new and so uh, and but some of the same information gets either re-relayed or just upended and mm-hmm. changed but like changed in a way that you're like oh i by the third story you're like oh i see what you did oh like, it's, it's very robert coover i was thinking about that mm-hmm. a lot and um speaking of alexandra Kleeman, she introduced me to coover and i've gone down a huge coover i've never hole read since him mm-hmm. there's this story uh called the babysitter and it I mean, he does this in a lot of his stories, but that's the most famous one where he does a lot of the same things where he starts telling a thing and then he jumps back and relays the story in a different way. And so within a single story, you're getting these sort of branching parallel Mm -hmm. sliding doors universes. And so the first, it's also weird because the first story in this is from Gerard's point of view Mm -hmm. and then everything else is from Benna's point of view. And so that first story, I was like, what's going on? Sort of. of. (laughs) And then I was, oh, okay. And by, yeah, by that third story, I was like, I figured this book out. I know what we're doing. I'm into this. It's super cool. And then the none of that keeps going. And you, yeah, I kept waiting for like, where's, where's the next twist? This can't be the like, er universe. I also like the cuteness of the first story a lot. Really? Yeah. Like I thought it was so weak. (laughs) No, I, I read the first three pages a couple of times because I was like, I'm going to go read something else. I just I really love the um because the first story um Gerard and Benna live at the top floor of they have they don't share an apartment but they keep their doors open and so they almost share a space but not really and I don't know I, and then but the, their bathrooms are in the same area so they like talk to each other when they're both like in the bathroom in whatever way that they are and I don't know I was very I I I liked the sort of gimmicky cuteness of that, and I mm. and I liked that she was still finding like notes of, I don't know, all the same notes that she ends up playing later, within well, that. So I was kind of I I was hoping for a return to that space. Like I, I guess um, I guess I've just th- read Jennifer Egan and one, <laughs> and think that like oh it'd be cool to see these characters twenty years later or something. Right. Yeah. No, I I think that story that you mentioned where they share the bathroom wall and there's a moment where Gerard is sitting in the bathroom waiting for her to come home. And in this one, in that story, there's different degrees of romantic longing mm-hmm. between them, never fulfilled, never mm-hmm. happy. Um, either Gerard has left her and she still loves him or he's cheating on her or in the first story he's pining for his neighbor essentially Mm -hmm. but he's sitting in the bathtub just waiting for her to come home and flush the toilet and that is such a poignant Laurie Moore moment and also not totally cute there that feels very real Mm -hmm. to me a lot of this book is cute which I think is what the Times Review was pointing out Uh that it's like a barrage of one-liners and bad jokes that people use in real life to distance themselves from intimacy and these characters use to distance themselves from intimacy but then you have a moment like that that is so real Mm. i loved all of the near anagram things and like nearly heard things that she was talking about and then them drinking near beer mm-hmm. oh, things yeah. are always like close to but never quite like that's like the entire 
idea of Lori Moore. It's like totally. things are, <laughs> you're close to what you want, but it's never, never really quite. What, never really what you want. No, there's a gap there, right? Mm-hmm. Between the words where the meaning like slips away. The book is so strange. And that's the other thing about Lori Moore characters is they rarely do exactly what you expect them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, except for the men are often cads. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about in self-help Several times I've read this story, which I think is the second story, where the man is cheating, but it's like pretty much out in the open Mm -hmm. that he's cheating and the woman doesn't confront it for quite a while. And that to me feels very old fashioned. Mm. So much of this book feels old fashioned, which is part of the reason I love it. It doesn't. It doesn't like it's. it does. It feels like it could have been written now even though it's about like the, it's very much of the moment. I don't know. I was thinking about this and I, I kept bringing it up to Danny. I was like, there's something about this. And I was thinking weird, like Charles Baxter popped into my mind mm. and Jay McInerney, totally. like a little bit like Brett Easton Ellis's first couple of books, but that thing of like the eighties and the early half of the nineties and sort of the like Reagan Clinton ascendant American, like look at what we can do. And I, it feels like everybody at this point has synthesized that. And now, I mean, I'm, I love this writing. I'm much more a fan of what we're doing now where we've sort of synthesized everything from every, and you're able to like put it out as your own thing. Like I see so many authors who are so inspired by Laurie Moore and you can trace that lineage, which Mm -hmm. is really cool. But there's something, this is the first time I've picked up a book where I was like, damn, this is the, 80s without any like big shoulders and like huge phones and things like that there's no there is nothing about this book other than like we were saying like landlines these little things but there are no huge cultural markers Mm. well i think the way they spend their time is different yeah that's true and like the way they consume media is so different there's voids there are massive voids where benna spends a paragraph staring out the window for an extended period of time. Right. And those are the things that are often our books are so full now. Right. Yeah. They're so full of Oh, that's so true. Obser- observing something worthwhile and synthesizing it and making some sort of pronouncement on it. Um there's a slowness to this. And the landlines it, I for me I was thinking about uh Mary Gateskill and Susan Minot's collection Lust mm-hmm. from the same time and sort of this like I want it it's not nascent but this like 80s style of feminism that feels so dated to me. Mm-hmm. That obvious Lori Moore's characters would never call themselves feminists but none of them have made the traditional heteronormative choices. Right. And any of her books. I mean, no, Frog Hospital, she's chosen to be married, but again, childlessness yeah. is like a massive theme for her. Um, and I really think that like with their like abortions and they're like, I've had sex, I just want to have sex. And there's something so like old fashioned and for la- lack of a better word, like white about Mm -hmm. it that it feels extreme that part of it feels extremely dated to me but i also think that it's important Mm -hmm. you know i can't because i read them so close to each other um i can't quite get marlena uh, by julie bunton 
and frog hospital mm-hmm. straight because <laughs> i read them back to back and yeah. now like i i'm like wait which did that which happened in which book julie had been recommending frog hospital to me for a while and so many people had been recommending laurie Moore to me when i read frog hospital i was like oh julie marlena is so smart because it's using it as a total blueprint mm-hmm. like which all of us do hopefully right we, we all need blueprints for our books but she didn't try to imitate the sentences which is what laurie moore is really about and if julie had tried to imitate laurie moore sentences it could have been derivative and instead it has echoes yeah right um but to- like frog hospital and the reason i think that from what I've read, which is almost all of it at this point, Frog Hospital is her most mature, accomplished, complete work. Um, Anagrams is really messy. Mm-hmm. And she yeah. took a huge risk <laughs> in yeah. the structure and even in the characters. They really, there's nothing necessarily pulling you close to them. Mm. They're kind, they can be a little despicable mm-hmm. um, and a little cold. <laughs> Yeah, I I thought of why did you ever? Um, oh God! Oh Mar- yeah, Mary oh. Robison, mm-hmm. um, which has that sort of feeling of um, there's like entries, and you're sort of like what's real and what's not, mm-hmm. and and what's going to be upended by the next paragraph. Um, well, also that that voice is so barbed, you yeah. cannot possibly <laughs> get close to it. It's performative and and actually this book is super performative yeah it's not asking you to live like until you get to the none of that to live inside the characters fears and hopes and anxieties necessarily it's really quippy and like two people performing at a diner drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes Mm mm-hmm uh, or maybe my other favorite other than the first story is the the yard sale it's when the, the two against one. one um it's two against one out here anyway and the stained negligee oh my god eleanor's <laughs> blood stained negligee that she's insisting on selling <laughs> i really i mean eleanor you think she's just comic relief but really she has to be like the 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 alter psyche to Benna, right? Mm-hmm. right a woman who i guess is less hopeful in mm. every story she's yeah. like a little like more nihilistic a little bit harder and more cynical than benna is maybe where she's where benna's heading mm. well i think we would all say that you need to read this book to understand any like at all what we're talking about yeah. <laughs> um and just uh i don't know I, I, I'm very clumsily walking us towards recommendations <laughs> because um, I think that we're at the point where people should just really read this book. If Absolutely. In this and if you like Laurie Moore's short stories, you will be very interested in this book. If you loved Frog Hospital, forget about it before you read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk uh, recommendations. Sure, let's do it. Uh, do you want to recommend something, Drew? I will. Uh, Charles Baxter's Saul and Patsy, which, I mean, Baxter is a 
renowned short story writer who's written a handful of novels. Um, John Warner actually recommended this book to me when he was doing the Biblioracle around the Tournament of Books. And I had read a Saul and Patsy short story. And it's just, it's this couple in, I'm pretty sure, Minnesota. And it, they just sort of, like, you keep thinking that a big thing's going to happen. And it ends up just sort of being constantly these just tiny moments of their life. Mm. And I remember I read it for the first time probably five or six years ago. And sort of being like, what? What the hell's going on with this book? Mm. He sets up all of these things where you think like, ooh, something big's going to happen. Something spooky's going to happen. And then every single thing just sort of resolves into normalcy Mm. and at the time you know i was in my early 20s and i was like everything should be weird weird things should happen in life and now as i think back on it and i just started rereading it there is some amount of like oh right that's what happens in life Mm. and it as i was as coming back to it right after reading anagrams i'm just it feels like the same you know the same pre-internet world Mm. without hitting you over the head of that world um yeah i'm i'm really enjoying coming back to it yeah but i think it's I've, also lovely for anybody who's never read baxter i've never read him nice he's, he's cool and well weird. i've read his short story yeah i used to collect those best short stories collection oh cool and he was always so is laurie moore they were always in them yeah um i'm gonna recommend again how to write an autobiographical novel by alexander chi i've been on such a productive memoir kick in addition to Laurie Moore which helps keep me grounded and Cheese Book and um, Negroland by Margot Jefferson Mm -hmm. are very special Negroland closer to an Elizabeth Hardwick style uh, memoir which is very much my cup of tea Elizabeth Hardwick wrote Sleepless Nights Um, yeah those two have kept me grounded while I'm just Lori Moore is echoing in my head and I can't <laughs> differentiate one story from the next. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, really cool. And you, sir? Uh, I'm recommending um, Marisha Pessel's new novel, Never World Wake. Um, comes out, I think it comes out at the beginning of June. Yeah, something like that. Um, and uh, it's a her YA novel. She wrote Special Topics in Calamity Physics. A masterpiece. A masterpiece. One of my favorite novels ever. And Night Film, which is also amazing. Been one of my favorite re- novels ever. Been wanting to read Night Film, you guys. I'm so excited she has a new book out. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really weird. Um, the idea of the book is it's um, this girl whose um, boyfriend died under mysteri- mysterious circumstances. It's been ruled a suicide, but she doesn't think that that's the full story. And... Um, she's sort of shunned herself away from her friends at this prep school where they all were. And she gets invited to hang out with them um, for someone's birthday and they get into a car accident and they find out, even though they get out of the car accident and go home, that they've all died. And um, they're now stuck in basically a purgatory groundhog day limbo where they're going to relive this same day over and over until they vote for one of them to live. Whoa. Mm. And so you're going through as they first, like try not to escape at all and just live the day over and over and try to make their lives interesting. Um, And then more and more. So it's kind of like, I don't know. It's crazy. Wow. It's that does not so, sound like it's for kids. It's it's, yeah. a, <laughs> it's so crazy. And her notebooks on like how this worked out must be really cool. 
Um, and she has a really funny uh, like Facebook group where she's like releasing scans of her notebook pages. And stuff. <laughs> cool. Wow. Uh, so yeah, Neverworld Wake by Marisha Pessel. It's the just the craziest thing. It's really exciting and fun. Oh, that is so cool that she has a new book out. Yeah. So this is like a weird Twilight Zone episode slash. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah. So that's my recommendation. Nice. Yum. <laughs> <laughs> And also, I recommend this uh, little television show on stars called Sweet Bitter. Oh, yeah. You've maybe seen an ad or two. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Three episodes, maybe four, are out at the the time of that this actually is coming out. But go check them out. By the way, now's the time to jump in. Yeah. Before the season finale. Episode four is the best one. Just so Ooh. you guys are ready. <laughs> written by Liz Ticillo, who's written on a million shows, but she's on Sex and the City and Divorce and directed by Shira Piven. Cool. It's very special. Cool. Cool. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us in the yeah, damn library thank you. again. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. And uh, everybody, you know, we say this every time and we're going to say it again because it's important to go on our patreon.com slash smdb um and sign up if you do we are going to be sending our ten dollar subscribers a tote bag in our next fun mailing um it's gonna say something really silly on it real silly uh definitely please uh sign up because you'll want this tote bag when you see it it's gonna be the new new riverhead tote yeah wow um Well, or, or at least, feel, a, at least I, Lit Hub. Like I, feel, uh, I was gonna say, I feel really nervous about having just said that. <laughs> or at least, at least that Joan Didion smoking. Um, oh yeah. Lit Hub. Also, really hard had. to get. You guys are over promising. I just want to be very <laughs> clear. Look, it's gonna be so exclusive though, because we've got that's like, true. Like nine people at the ten dollar thing. Great. So it's gonna be the most exclusive tote that, in the world. What? Yeah. <laughs> also overpromised. <laughs> also, please go um, review us on, on um, iTunes. We're so close to 100 reviews, you guys. Maybe don't oh. say anything about the totes. <laughs> it's going to be the best. We're going to get like a swath of one-star reviews being like, tote does not live up to the hype. <laughs> Look, if you put stuff in this tote, it'll come out better. <laughs> like if you put a $20 bill oh in there, God. it'll come out a $100 oh bill. Oh, my God. If you if you put you yep. know, quote um, to- him Toby quote Co- him guys if you put Toby Co in there it'll come out caviar it's gonna be really um, it's gonna be magic wow <laughs> well strong bye everybody. <laughs>